VMAX always improves AMAX. So again, if it's just like they just can't get to speeds that they need by that third step, just, you know, your basic sprinting model. So uh, again, just looking, are they deficit more so uh, just in the magnitude of force they can produce in those first three steps or the velocities at which they reach um, uh, typically on the third step is going to kind of dictate. But but again, from a general physical preparation standpoint, like if your acceleration training is on point, um, then, you know, everything else just kind of takes care of itself. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast features an interview with Adam Petway. So Adam is horizontal jumps coach at Westchester University and works alongside a previous podcast guest, Ken Clark, having previously worked with the Philadelphia 76ers and the Washington Wizards in the NBA. And it's around this experience in the NBA with basketball players that we focus our our discussion today. So Adam has brought a book out called Basketball Mechanics, where he breaks down the movements that NBA players go through in games day in, day out. So that's broken down via position as well. It's a highly detailed book on how you can break down the different components of a sport and then how you can actually test based on those and then program off the back of that. So it's a really, really interesting book. And we don't dive into too much into the book, but the aspects and the philosophies around it and how you, the coach, in various of the sports other than basketball, can do the same to make a really specific testing battery and then program effectively off the back of it. So it's a really, really interesting episode with Adam. I was delighted to get him on because he's such a good guy. He also wrote a really interesting piece on Sportsmith around this as well, so definitely check that out. Um, So I'll hand over to Adam. Really interesting chat. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. Smarterbase from Fusion Sport is the premier human performance optimization platform for elite sports teams and military organizations. Built on infinitely configurable framework, Smarterbase is the most flexible software on the market. Create an adaptable solution to support your unique strategy, process, and culture for a fraction of the cost and time it takes to build your own. Centralize your performance and health data by easily integrating with other tech and data systems using Smarterbase's robust API and custom-built connectors. Improve performance and reduce injury by enabling better communication and decision-making with role-based access, custom workflows, mobile apps, and personalized visual dashboards. 
and with the Smarterbase success guarantee, you can be confident in your human performance solution and the people who stand behind it. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash Smarterbase to learn how Smarterbase can help you improve athlete performance and service member combat readiness. Also sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade, with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. So without further ado, over to the episode with Adam. Adam Petway, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to finally get you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. Huge fan of everything you do, and uh, you know it's an honor to be with ah, you. Thank you for thank you for making a little bit of time in your morning. So really appreciate you uh, you squeezing me into your your schedule. Anyone doesn't know who you are, Adam. You've written a, a piece for for Sportsman, so people should be aware of who you are. But if they're not, can you give us a bit of a brief background on what you're doing now, what you've done in the past, all the good stuff? Yes. Sure. Uh, great, great question. You know, I, I've coached sport on pretty much every level. I actually started here domestically in America as a high school coach. So I coached uh, ninth grade boys basketball. Um, and I was also the strength and conditioning coach for the entire high school. Um, so so from there, I really found out quickly I was more in tune with the physical preparation aspect and the tactical X's and O's of basketball. Um, so I took a division three job and it was kind of the opposite. I was the head of strength and conditioning, but I was also an assistant coach for the men's basketball team. Um, and that gave me great insight and perspective what a tactical coach goes through, but I could still run, uh, you know, a high performance department like I wanted to. So I was doing things such as um, scouting, recruiting, um, things on the operation side, because on the division three level, you kind of have to be uh, a jack of all trades, so to speak. So simultaneously, while I was doing that, I was also doing um, a head SNC role. Um, from, from there, I went to George Washington University. That was my first time being exposed to like, uh, you know, a really sound strength and conditioning department. And I learned from a guy named Ben Kenyon, um, who's now the head SNC for the Philadelphia 76ers. So it's, uh, it's kind of funny how things come full circle there. Um, from, from there, I went to the University of Maryland as a basketball performance coach. I got the opportunity to learn from a guy named Kyle Tarp, um, unbelievable practitioner, uh, marrying, uh, you know, a lot of specificity and uh, the more functionally dense side of, uh, you know, training and physical preparation for basketball and linking to what goes on on the court. Um, from, from there, I had the opportunity to work at the University of Arkansas for five years. Um, that, that was really um, uh, an unbelievable opportunity for me and my growth. Uh, I got to interface a lot with the kinesiology department on campus. Um, that's where data collection occurred for, for my thesis and my PhD, um, working with the men's basketball team there. 
they had unbelievable speed power in track and field, um, which uh, I was exposed to a lot of really high level athletes. So that that was really um, good for my advancement over my career. Um, from there, I had the opportunity to um, dive, dive a little bit deeper into some of the things that interest me as far as physics and biomechanics and start some really cool projects with the Philadelphia 76ers for two years. Um, you know, from, from there, I went as the director of athletic performance uh, at the Washington Wizards. And then as things come full circle, uh, I moved back to the Philadelphia area and I'm coaching horizontal jumps at Westchester University. So long and triple jump um, and uh, and kind of interfacing with their kinesiology department on campus. Superb. So when you left the Wizards, was it ever a as an opportunity to stay in basketball? Was was the next kind of the horizontal jump side of things something you wanted to pursue, or was it just a, a matter of getting back to the area that you want you guys wanted to live as a family? Yeah, I, Philadelphia area is home for us. Um, and then when the the jumps coach position opened at Westchester, it was just kind of a no brainer. It's something I've always wanted to do. So. Um, when I was working full-time with men's basketball at the University of Arkansas, I would coach some of the post-collegiate kids um, that would come back training for Olympics and world championships. Um, so it's something that I always wanted to dedicate myself to 100%, but just never had the uh, the time and the resources to do so. So some cool projects coming up as well, or ongoing as well, with the with the jumps guys there. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Should we wait a little bit till, uh, into the meat of the conversation? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we could, uh, we could wait just a little bit. Okay. Let's do that. Let's do that. So in terms of, oh, you've got the book as well. Don't forget the book. Yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. Basketball mechanics. So it's a, you know, labor of love. Um, and it, it actually stems within my time in speed power actually. So, um, you know, probably 2014, 2015, I was working with a sprinter, a post-collegiate kid at the University of Arkansas, training for world championships. Um, and I was just weight room, you know, basic power development, plyometrics. We did a little bit of acceleration mechanics, but I was definitely, you know, just uh, S&C. And uh, so I was like, man, I, I really, I better figure this thing out, um, you know, because world chances coming up, Olympics 2016. Um, so I was like, you know, I'm just a basketball s and and, you know, uh, I don't have much experience in speed power. So I started asking around who can I come in and get an in-service to kind of help me out, figure, you know, distribution of training load, menu items for desired adaptations, things of that nature. Um, and Coach Boost Next Snyder just kept coming up. So, um, you know, I had years of force plate data, uh, you know, Tendo unit data, um, body composition data. And I was really going to impress Coach Boo with just, you know, how thorough and meticulous everything he was in the weight room. Um, so we, we have a man and he observes a session, really, really likes it. Um, so at the end of the session, you know, I'm showing all this data and he was like, okay, what what does, you know, this athlete look like coming out of the blocks? What's his front knee angle? I was like, well, I don't know. What's his projection angle out of the blocks? Well, I don't know. What's his flight to contact time in his drive phase? Uh, I don't know. What's his pelvic position as he comes around the last hundred meters and his speed endurance qualities? Well, coach, I don't know. I'm never, <laughs> I'm never out on the track. And that, that's kind of when it hit me. Like, you know, I, I need to use these components that they're um, exposed to in their environment to kind of reverse engineer their sport if I'm going to train them in the weight room, right? 
So um, I, I took this model of kind of like an insight to evaluation and wanted to apply it to my sporting activity of basketball. So, you know, I tried to read as much as I could on speed power, uh, you know, James Hay and the Mechanics of Athletics, great resource, um, you know, Jeffrey Dyson and uh, Sports and Bi Biomechanics Techniques, also another great resource. Um, so, like, I tried to learn as much as I could relative to the world of speed power. Um, however, you know, the crux is in a team sport, it's, it's acyclical. There's, you know, four teammates, five opponents, 94 by 50 foot hardwood parameter, two baskets, uh, you know, you got to shoot a ball in there's human air as far as like the officiating. So uh, a lot more variability within the sporting activity of basketball. So I, I called up my buddy who's a, a tactical coach in the NBA. And uh, I just gave him this idea like, hey, you know, what makes a good basketball player? Like what, what are some distinct physical qualities that are common denominators among the world's top performers? Um, and, and we just started kind of kicking, you know, ideas back and forth. Uh, you know, what what does this look like? What does that look like? So, you know, after several conversations, we kind of reduced it down to um, the game's top performers. It's all about spacing. So on offense, it's the ability to create space for a high percentage uncontested shot, hopefully from one of your best players. Defensively, in the tactical aspects in basketball, it's the ability to occupy space. So can you occupy uh, your, your opponent's space as a defender to force a low percentage contested shot? Hopefully a long contested two is the worst shot in basketball, and hopefully you can force that from a low percentage uh, shooter. Um, so, so within that, uh, you know, uh, you know, my Ryan Richmond, who's my co-author on basketball mechanics, he, he came up in the video room before he was a, a front of the bench coach in the NBA. So we got tons of film and we classified success as top 10 points per possession on offense as the, the best, like for tactical categories, like ball screen situations, transition, post up offense, uh, dribble handoffs. So if you're top 10 in the league, in the NBA, at points per possession, we pulled 100 clips of you doing that on ball screens, dribble handoffs, post-ups. Um, the, conversely, on the flip-in, uh, it's the least points per possession on defense, right? So defensively, if you're uh, in isolation and you allow the least points per possession in that tactical situation, whether it's ball screen defense, rim protection, isolation, dribble handoff defense, then we pulled your clips, right? And all we did was look for common denominators, right? So what do the best pick and roll guards look like when they're attacking the basket opposed to spacing the perimeter? And we just created technical models around that for the top 10 performers in the world, right? And we started to kind of pull out and see common denominators. Luckily, this coincided with right at the beginning of the pandemic. So we had ample time to complete this project. There's no doubt that Ryan and I would still be working on basketball mechanics if the pandemic didn't hit when it did. So to, to give you um, kind of context, I would go into Dartfish and just model out uh, displacement relative to time, change in displacement relative to time. Uh, if you have the athlete's known body mass, you can kind of model out some uh, just basic Newtonian physics to get ground reaction forces or centripetal acceleration. Um, th things of that nature, but to do one clip probably took 10 minutes, right? And we would do a hundred clips per player for 10 players for 14 categories, right? <laughs> so it was, it was quite a robust project. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, I'm really reaching out to people. The processing 
in time as far as future considerations, there has to be more of a time-friendly, economical way to do it. It's just, you know, based on the resources that we currently have available, I think that's current best practice, you know? Interesting. So we'll get, we'll probably, the book will probably come back in our conversation as we go. But what I want to have a little chat around is physical assessments, which feature in the book as well. And I think one thing to talk about and will be quite interesting because I think not only for the younger coach, but all the way through, whether you're, like I say, beginner or, or veteran coach, choosing the right tests to tell you where you're going to guide your training is obviously one of the first decisions that, that has to be made. Understanding the sport, understanding the athlete, understanding how you want to play as a as a team, as an organization. So how would you go through, how have you gone through that process of deciding which assessments are appropriate for, for basketball? Yeah, no, that that's a great question, Rob. I think, so in, in a traditional model, you have, it's very linear, right? So you have essentially your assessments at top, based on what you find in your assessment, you have an intervention. And then based on your intervention, you create an outcome measure to determine success or maybe things you need to adjust, right? Um, that That's great. However, within the discipline and sporting activity of basketball, um, I, I found that the the practitioners that have the most success and influence on the environment know the tactical aspects of the sporting activity, right? Because the problem with that linear model is, okay, I might assess something like neuromuscular fatigue, right? Well, why are they fatigued in an acute state? Well, they probably had travel, maybe back-to-backs, maybe, um, you know, minutes increased from a loading perspective. Um, however, so we might create an intervention that says, okay, this athlete is a neuromuscular fatigue. We might want to increase recovery, right? But the reason they are fatigued is because an increase in playing time or an increase in training. Well, me as an SNC or performance practitioner, I don't have a direct um, effect on those two things. However, if I do have a good relationship with the technical and tactical staff and I can speak their language, that just makes uh, life so much easier and potentially decreasing the amount of fatigue. You can kind of come to them and say, hey, you know, I noticed like from an economical standpoint, they're taking two more steps than they should defending this ball screen. Or maybe, hey, in transition, instead of just running straight to the corner, um, you know, their, their spacing isn't correct in this situation. So it's causing them to cover extra distance. Is there something we can address from either a technical or tactical component that maybe can decrease um, this potential like fatigue state? And then it creates dialogue, right? Um, so I, I think having a very centralized model and where the, the sporting activity from a technical and tactical component kind of peripherate out and determine what assessments you might use as a practitioner. I've got a little quote, understand the technical, tactical aspect, technical and tactical aspects of the sporting activity. And this brings me back onto this. That's the quote that you just, you said there. And I think it brings me back onto the multiple conversations that I've had specifically in soccer coaches, soccer SNC coaches who are trying to influence the head coach. And it's the same in any sport going, whether you have to be, or, you know, certain, um, negativity around ex-players who fall fall into those positions and who have uh, more of an influence because they're an ex-player but they're an ex- they have that influence because they've got that technical and tactical knowledge which influences the 
sporting activity. So how that's one that obviously you can't if you're not an ex player you can't do much about it if you're not one and you're 35. But how did you start to understand the technical and tactical aspects to be able to have those conversations and and feel like you were talking with confidence? Yeah, that that's a great question. You know, right you know, my, my co-author Ryan would say, just always be around, right? Be in film, be in meetings if you can. And I, I understand there may be some political constraints with some environments where that may not be possible, but you can be out on the floor when, you know, practice is going on instead of your, your laptop looking at GPS numbers, or, you know, you, you can be immersed in the culture. I, I think, I think culturally, being able to kind of dive deep and ask some of these more uh, questions with the technical and tactical staff um, is very important from performance S&C practitioners. Not to say you have to, you know, um, be out there leading technical drills or drawing up X and O's, you know, tactical plays and ball screen situations, but you should at least have a concept of what's going on. I, I think, you know, this concept of insight to evaluation or basketball mechanics it really shouldn't change your general physical preparation as a practitioner at all. You're going to have, you know, increased relative strength qualities. You're probably going to have some basic power development. There's probably morphological or anatomical adaptations that you're going to try to address in, you know, your early stages of training, right? However, when you funnel from general to specific, you better have some sort of technical model that you've created to address some of these deficiencies from, you know, a specific aspect, whether it's, you know, okay, you know, uh, defensive stance is a big one <laughs> in, in basketball. Hey, they just can't get in a stance. Well, what's your model around that? Hey, we can't move laterally. Like, you know, uh, our guys blowing past us every time. Like, what's your model around that? Um, so, so again, the, the ability to have those conversations with the technical and tactical staff, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be an ex-player. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be leading drills from a technical standpoint out on the court or field or pitch or wherever it is, but you better have some sort of model to address some of these deficiencies from a specificity standpoint. Can we use that example? The, the athlete or the player can't move laterally. So if that was, if a coach came to you, if your co-author, you're working with your co-author and he came to you and said, this player can't do this. Can you take us through your process to assess that and then potentially we'll bring in some intervention as well how that how you may attack that yeah so there we we found two deficiencies based on um our ball screen defense um and we delineated guards and post and for for the audience that's not really familiar with the tactical aspects of basketball uh guards are your perimeter players that are usually smaller more compact very quick shifty change of direction your bigs are more of your underneath the basket type players, right? Um, so we found two mechanical deficiencies um, within ball screen defense. One is a kinematic deficiency, hip abduction velocity, where their joints just cannot move within the frontal plane at a speed that they need to, to keep the defender um, or keep the offensive person between them and the basket, right? So you just like, you just can't move with the amount of limb speed that you need to translate right to left. Uh, the other one is a kinetic factor, right? Just magnitude of ground reaction force was also a limiting factor, typically in the guards, right? So we have a menu item of um, interventions based on our deficiency, right? So if it's more of a velocity thing or hip abduction qualities, right? 
Like we can do some one-off grader work. We can do some frontal plane leaping. We can do some like, uh, you know, assisted type work to help with, with that kinematic feature, right? If it's just magnitude of ground reaction force from a lateral standpoint, well, that's easy. Like just load up a heavy sled and march laterally with it, right? So just to keep things as bare bones as simple as possible, it's, you know, there's either a kinematic or kinetic deficiency. And based on that deficiency, we have an intervention. Typically, when you look at uh, limb length and body type and position, uh, that will also dictate what might be um, their, their deficiency. So, so meaning like some of your short compact guards typically can move with great limb velocity, but don't produce a lot of ground reaction force. Some of your anthropometrically long femur, high hip center of mass bigs um, typically can produce a lot of ground reaction force, right? However, they cannot move their limbs with the correct velocity to keep them um, moving side to side appropriately to uh, evade like uh, direct line drives where the offensive person is going straight towards the rim. You have to kind of re redirect that line of um, drive, essentially. So how so in terms of getting to know those two aspects, so creating them them buckets, what was the assessment process? What did that assessment process look like to understand that for you? Yeah, so just uh, uh, watching a lot of film and just breaking it down, that, that was one, right? Because, like, think about it. You can do a frontal plane leap off a force plate, and you could film it with 3D kinematics and kind of have, like, your model based on that. However, I mean, there's, again, four teammates, five opponents – three referees, you know, a ball. So there's a lot of reactive components that may influence what decision-making skills they have. So I think using, again, in a centralized model, the game as the assessment and then letting everything periferate around that. So uh, again, wa watching a lot of film and then having conversations with the technical and tactical staff is a great way to start, right? But let's say, let's say you don't have that luxury, right? I, I think you can you can recreate or simulate a lot of these game type situations in your assessment. Um, you know, again, like lateral leap is a great way to start, you know, and that'll tell you get, do it on a force plate magnitude of horizontal force. You got hip abduction qualities that you can film and kind of build it out from there. Was there any other particular examples that come to mind that you could run us through? Because I think that's, that's a really nice way to go about it. I think it puts a nice picture in people's minds. So we've got the player can't move laterally. Is there any other common questions or um, comments that come to, would come to you or have come to you from coaches that you could run us through that process again? Yeah, it's transition. I, I hear every every coach says we want to play fast. We want to generate offense very quickly. Uh, we want to be on the attack. So they use like these kind of buzzwords. Um, but like, oh, so and so can't run. Well, you know, after breaking down transitions offensively, um, a athletes in basketball really only accelerate the first three steps in transition. Right after that, they're decelerating to either evade an opponent or kind of um, respace tactically, run to the corner. Um, you know, set some sort of screen off ball or on ball. Um, number two is that basketball athletes are actually quicker in transition with the ball than without the ball. So like horizontal velocities are, you know, significantly greater when uh, a transition is occurring with the basketball opposed to when they're just spacing without. Um, again, I, I think from a general physical preparation standpoint, that's not going to change your acceleration training your top velocity training, 
your plyometric training at all, right? But as you get into a specific nature, if if their flying tens are going up, but the tactical coach still feels like they're not running in transition, like you need to have some sort of model to address that, right? And if you're watching film and you say, well, you know, they're getting faster, right? You know, VMAX is up, AMAX is up as a result. Like what, why aren't we, why isn't there transference? Well, maybe it's because, you know, um, where they're starting on the court in transition isn't correct. Maybe they're not running to the corner when they're supposed to. Maybe they just have no feel on where to be. So I think having context relative to the film and the tactical aspects of what's going on will kind of help you kind of move the needle just that much further. Again, from a general physical preparation standpoint, it's not going to change anything you're going to do in your training. However, if there is no transference from the athletes getting faster um, compared to there's no um, conversion as it relates to getting more like transition buckets, having a technical model around that uh, makes your life so much you know easier as a as a performance practitioner. So in that transition, knowing that the f- after three steps they actually start decelerating, either meeting an opponent, meeting the end of the court, meeting the side of the court, whatever happens in that in that transition period, knowing that it's only three steps, what does how does that change, or how did that change? Having come to understand that, how did that change your physical preparation model to address that transition period? What did that look like? Like you say, exercise selection menu. Yeah. So, you know, 90 by, 94 by 50 feet, I mean, roughly 27, 28 meters, right? So like our guys are rarely hitting their max velocity in competition, right? You'd have to run diagonally from one side of the court to the other unobstructed, right? Which never happens in competition. Um, so really, I think from a general physical preparation standpoint, it really didn't change much at all. But using like, um, you know, short sided transition games and very like clustered where you have to make a decision. Right. And I, I worked for a coach that was really big into pressing and running. Um, he was great at using um, very chaotic drills to force athletes to run appropriately in space when they ran. Um, so, so, again, Having those conversations with that coach, I, I assessed, right? I, I had an intervention based on my assessment, but I didn't control that intervention. The, the tactical coach did. So I was like, hey, hey, coach, like, you know, athlete X, you know, uh, VMAX is improving when we do our 60 meter sprints. Um, their 10 meter fly times are going up. I know spacing is an issue because um, this athlete's a big and he's not rim running appropriately. How can we address this, right? So again, it's having that kind of um, conversation with, with the tactical coach because I identified maybe a deficiency based on my assessment, but I didn't control the intervention, right? So was there any particular intervention that you could control that you implemented to try to enhance that from a physical perspective? Yeah, a- absolutely. I think... I think um, it, as far it, as far as what, as far as them them kind of f- the first three steps that initial acceleration. So you've got you've you've identified that that is obviously a key component of how the coach wants to play. He's implementing his intervention based on particular drills and small sided games to to manipulate certain scenarios to encourage that and improve that. When it comes to the physical aspect, something in the weight room or something you can control. What did that look? What did your model look like from from that perspective? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if it's just magnitude of horizontal ground reaction force, I think heavy slides like two times body weight and just pushing for a certain like distance, probably no more than 10 meters at, at a time seem to really help those first three steps in transition. Um, VMAX always improves AMAX. So again, if it's just like they just can't get to speeds that they need by that third step, just, you know, your basic sprinting model. So uh, again, just looking, are they deficit more so uh, just in the magnitude of force they can produce in those first three steps are the velocities at which they reach um, typically on the third step is going to kind of dictate. But but again, from a general physical preparation standpoint, like if your acceleration training is on point, um, then, you know, everything else just kind of takes care of itself, right? So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Adam. So over in part two, we have a little chat around RSI. We have a little chat around different jump metrics that can be, that should be collected with athletes to paint a clearer picture of what their needs are. And also have a little chat around uh, individual differences based on resi training residuals as well. So really interesting part two coming up with Adam. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Satanta College. Satanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognized qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, Applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching, and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit satantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And this episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at-rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website omegawave.com and their social media channels. And now back to the episode with Adam. Right, let's take a little bit of a, a right turn and go down the neuromuscular readiness, neuromuscular fatigue side of things, given your your previous works. So, as you'll know 
far better than I do, but as well as other people out there who are working day to day with uh, with head coaches. One question, the main question, is that player fit? What state is what state is he in after Saturday's game? What state is he in after yesterday's game? Assessing neuromuscular readiness, what options have we got to do that effectively, reliably, and that fits into a team environment? Yeah, no, that, that's a that's a great question. I think um, I think you have to identify. Okay, there's this idea of readiness versus preparedness, right? So my last year at Arkansas, we tested athletes uh, just doing a jump test 15 minutes prior to practice and 15 minutes post practice, and we used our fatiguing model as just the training, um, and we just wanted to look at how different volume and intensity affected the effect size on the retest post practice, right? Um, and, and what we found was that certain metrics um, were on an acute readiness standpoint were very sensitive to neuromuscular fatigue. Um, from an absolute standpoint or the chronicity of the season as a whole, um, some of your absolute metrics were stable, but would uniformly rise and fall just based on the time of year. So uh, again, I think when, when you tease out and you pull out different kinetic metrics for neuromuscular readiness to assess you know, fatigue, um, what we found is um, match day minus one pre to post in the effect size when reactive strength index increased, um, you know, 24 hours prior to competition. So did the athletes peak speed in game the next day. Right. So from a neuromuscular readiness standpoint, reactive strength index is a byproduct of flight to contact time or a temporal metric. Um, rose and fell uniformly with in-game peak speed. So if a coach comes to me and says, okay, Adam, is it, are our athletes ready for competition tomorrow and we're match day minus one, I'm probably going to look at, you know, reactive strength index or some sort of temporal metric to gauge neuromuscular readiness within our athletes, right? However, when we looked at seasonal variations using the same methodology, um, we used peak power, relative peak power, and jump height. Um, absolute metrics, right? So no temporal component, right? Just peak power relative to body weight and jump height. Um, very stable metrics. They didn't fluctuate on a day-to-day like impulse or RSI are things that are time dependent. Um, so if a coach comes to me and says, um, Adam, uh, is this athlete more powerful? And maybe it's the off-season or preseason. They want to they wanna marker of longitudinal progress over time, then I'm probably going to use relative peak power because it's a stable metric. And it, when just looking at like early season compared to later season, um, the, it, w- it did not fluctuate, right? So it gradually decreased relative to density of competition and time of year. However, when you looked at a day-to-day or pre-to-post practice, um, it was relatively stable. So if I, if I, if a coach comes to me and says, are we progressing over time? Are we getting stronger? Are we getting more powerful? I'm probably going to look at some of my absolute metrics like relative peak power to gauge preparedness or assess the chronicity of effects of training. If a coach comes to me and says, are we ready for competition? Like, are, are, we, are we ready to go? Then I'm going to look at RSI. Um, I might look at, you know, eccentric deceleration impulse or something that's more time dependent. Um, to gauge where we at, we are at for that moment of time. Was there any particular aspect that you saw in within RSI in terms of which side of the ratio was 
changing to enable that RSI to, to fluctuate to allow you to answer that question on an acute basis? Yeah, so it, it was essentially ground contact time, right? So jump height, again, being a very stable metric, the same. It's just, were they getting off the ground quicker relative to their individual norms? Yeah. Yeah. So looking at outcome, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of talk in the, in the research, uh, as well as in, in applied practice with outcome measures versus strategy measures. And you've mentioned both there. Is there any particular reason why you wouldn't go down the just the jump height route? I know there's a lot been a lot of work over the years. Stu Carmack in you know pre 2012 2013 around those kind around that kind of work. But is there any particular reason why you wouldn't just go down the jump height route and use that as the the measure to try to understand and answer that question of are they ready or not? Yeah, no, you you could absolutely do that. But I think if you're if you're just using jump height as your metric again. Um, just it being very stable, depending on when you pull it out, you may be missing a little bit as it relates to uh, neuromuscular fatigue, right? So yeah, it, it is a very stable metric. There's tons of valuable information you can get by just using jump height. And relative to the environment, maybe you don't have a data scientist to process all you know 45 metrics you could pull out from, from a force platform. Or let's say you don't even have a force platform. Let's say you just have a jump mat and a vertex. I think I think jump height and using jump height as um, a status for neuromuscular readiness can be a very effective tool. However, based on um, you know previous research um, that that I've done, it, it seems like it's such a stable metric that maybe it doesn't show the whole picture of neuromuscular readiness or that snapshot of where that athlete is in time. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've talked about jumps and using force plates is there anything completely removed from the jumps removed from the force plate that we could potentially use to try to understand your muscular fatigue and and readiness well so in my my current role yeah the outcome measure is built into the sport right uh jump distance right so uh are the athletes jumping further relative to their norms so um, some of the pilot studies that we're currently doing um, with, with our cohort of men's and women's track and field athletes, um, we just have Hawkins Dynamics plates right there trackside, and we're replicating the methodologies from um, our studies with basketball, but doing it in a track and field in a cyclical um, population, right? So, yeah, the, the three questions that we're looking to answer, A, um, throughout the training week, right? Um, triple jump is a brutal sport. Biomechanical studies have shown that you're producing, um, you know, ground reaction forces up to 12 times body weight on a single leg in the transition from your first to second phase. It is an absolutely mechanical, brutal sport. If I compete on Saturday, what's the residual time that it takes me to return to neuromuscular baseline, right? And how is that individual, um, compared to each jumper? And how is that individual relative to the event-specific groups, right? Um, the ground reaction forces that you produce in an 800 are completely different than a long jump, right? Throwing, you know, sprinting, uh, hurdling, you know, vaulting. These are all such physically different sports. What's the refractory time of recovery, right? Um, the second question we want to answer is, do these metrics uniformly rise and fall with performance outputs? Meaning, again, RSI, competition day minus one, 
if it increases relative to my normative values, does that mean it's a predictive measure for me jumping longer or jumping higher or running faster? Um, the third question we want to um, answer, and this is a really interesting one, is event-specific metrics that are significant for um, each cohort of athletes. Meaning like, okay, we know that like our throwers are two standard deviations away from the norm as it relates to like impulse and momentum, right? However, if you look at our jumpers, it's completely opposite. Uh, reactive strength index, they're uh, a whole standard deviation away from the, the average of the group as it relates to reactive strength components. So what does it look like for each event specific group? Um, and what metrics are most important to that group, right? So the big question, how close are you to having some understanding of trying to answer those three questions? Very close. So we, we just concluded a data collection for our outdoor season. Um, you know, we're, we're collaborating with Hawkins and probably should have these manuscripts out within, you know, the calendar year. So again, scientific process takes time, but we're much more closer to having uh, answers to these questions for sure. Can you give us any insights? Yeah, no, I, I think a so just using um, using uh, median split analysis, I think you can say that in sprinting and jumping, stiffness qualities are a principal component as it relates to delineating talent identification between your really good jumpers and your not so good jumpers. Right. Um, B, I would say uniformly, there is longer residual effects as it relates to neuromuscular fatigue um in certain events compared to others right so meaning uh distance runners compete on saturday they're probably ready for a high neuromuscular day of training the next week within 48 hours okay a lot of our jump crew and sprinters that is going to be a lot longer time period and time course right so if you want to look at your intervention being like okay i know we're going to have to hit a high neuromuscular day within our microcycle um, you can use your neuromuscular assessment and the return to baseline as a proxy to serve when that falls within the training week. Is it four days after? Is it five days after? And how is that going to affect the following competition, right? So again, having depth over width in your assessment, I think being able to test something every day kind of gives us the power um, and the autonomy to kind of tease out what's significant. And how have you seen the, the individual differences in that residual, especially for the sprinters and jumpers who may go on multiple days? What's the individual differences? There, there are high versus low responders, uh, for sure. There, there is individual variance, but when you start clustering groups as a whole, you start to see trends and patterns, right? Um, one interesting thing, and it's, uh, it's a shame because it's an N of one, but um, multis. Multis um, are good at everything, right? So we do a counter movement jump, a rebound counter movement jump, and a repeat hop, right? And typically, like, for example, the reactive strength qualities of your throwers are horrible, but their impulse and momentum that can they can generate in a counter movement jump is unbelievable because it takes time to generate a lot of force rotationally to throw a shot or a hammer or a disc, right? Um, however, when you look at multi-events, right, and it's a very small sample size, but it's something we want to investigate in the future, they're not deficient at any metric in any three of our evaluations. And, 
you know, I have hypothesized that it's because that they have to do so much within their events, right? So uh, next year, there's actually a multis only um, competition. And I'm going to just try to bring the plates there and see if we can't get all the multis people and just get the whole core hoe to, to test the, the hypothesis. So what were the three assessments that you just mentioned that you were using for this? Yeah, so counter movement jump. Yeah counter movement rebound jump where we just do two and just like a, a pogo like a high frequency hop or an ankle stiffness bound for five okay nice excellent right i reckon we move on for the to, to the final kind of major point in our in our little chat here and that's managing achilles issues in basketball am i right for, for someone that knows nothing about basketball that that would be a particular common issue that you would deal with in a in a high performance environment dealing with ankle and achilles issues Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, ankle sprains and Achilles are, uh, you know, an epidemic within within basketball. Um, You're going to deal with that with a high rate of frequency, either um, acutely, like somebody steps on their foot, sprains an ankle, not uncommon, um, or from from a chronic issue like uh, Achilles tendinopathy. Again, especially in your older athletes is going to be uh, something at some point within uh, your career in basketball that you're going to deal with. Um, So so currently, actually, our former medical director um, from the 76ers and I are um, collaborating on a project right now, just examining uh, Achilles tendon ruptures within the National Basketball Association. Um, and, and what we found is since like 1992, there's been roughly 33 Achilles tendon ruptures. And we just wanted to look at, okay, what are known factors involved with this? And what's the distribution of known factors? So when we looked at, um, you know, chronological age, playing time, uh, training load leading up to injury, um, we, we found that, you know, older athletes are more at risk, it seems like. Um, so the average age of an NBA athlete is around 24. The average age of um, an NBA athlete to rupture their Achilles is like 29 and a half. So, you know, um, we also just wanted to pull film and we use the same methodologies as we did for basketball mechanics and just looked at mechanism of injury, right? Um, And what we found in Achilles tendon ruptures is that there's a very distinct um, profile as far as it relates to mechanism of injury, right? So it's a, it's kind of like a false step or a negative step as it refers to in the literature where the athlete, when wanting to project their center of mass horizontally actually takes a step backwards and then has an extreme range of ankle dorsiflexion and trunk flexion associated with that, right? So to, um, ranges up to like 47 and a half, 48 degrees of um, ankle dorsiflexion and trunk flexion up to like 42, 43 degrees. So that, those two mechanisms um, with, within a false step was consistent 100% of the time across these injuries when evaluated for a 30-year period, essentially. Um, so when, when looking at that, we say, okay, we want to hit the – because – it's trained within the technical aspects of basketball. You train that negative step, you train that false step, right? So if athletes are going to go there, they need to go there with a stiff, rigid foot and where they don't go to end range dorsiflexion um, to create kind of contingencies when if they are going to go there, at least they go there in a very safe, protective uh, manner and mechanism, right? So getting into things like isometric training at that range where the, uh, the foot is very stiff and very rigid to uh, handle those ground reaction forces is very, very important. 
So we're, we're still, again, working through that. Uh, but, but that is just a trend we found. We started that project probably last fall. And uh, it's something that should be out here again in the next couple of months. So when it comes to day-to-day, man- not management, but potential looking at prevention of this type of injury, you mentioned isometrics there. Is there any, how would that fit in? How are you creating those exercises? What kind of positions are you putting athletes in to make sure they're, they've been there before, but they've been there before in a safe environment. So when they're in a chaotic environment, it's nothing too, um, too much of an issue. So, so I think, uh, again, going back to the centralized uh, methodology, I think, and one thing that I didn't realize until breaking down the film is uh, conversations with the technical staff is uh, crucial in this one, right? Like, so your player development coaches, um, if they're not identifying that mechanism and repping it the correct way, you can do all sorts of isometric calf raises and, you know, soleus and gastroc work you want in the training room and the weight room, which we do. Um, But if it's not addressed with the technical coach, um, usually there's no carryover there, right? Where the athlete's just going to kind of uh, take the path of least resistance. And when they're teaching direct line drives with the false step or negative step, they're going to hit the ground with kind of a loose, flaccid foot. So I think two things, you you do all your, you know, training room and weight room work, but also having dialogue within the context of the, the technical development staff, because they are going to teach that false step and negative step to do it with a stiff, rigid foot where they're not going to in-range dorsiflexion. So is that just a case of educating the technical coaches for what to for, for cues to to use? Is that pati- changing particular drills so it forces athletes into that? How does that work on a day to day basis? Yeah, I think it's a component of both, right? So I think there is an education process. You probably don't want to come in with in range dorsiflexion and creating like you know stiff for horizontal ground reaction forces. But if you show them film, film's always like the the common denominator because they they have chunked enough um, enough images of athletes doing certain movements that they're highly skilled at that. So if you can show them like, hey, like here's what you know we've seen in the past, right? And here's the positions we want these athletes to avoid in their technical development training. I, I guarantee you that coach will be able to pick up on that right away. Like though the technical and tactical coaches are very, very intuitive and very smart for the most part. Mm. Just just touching on that isometric, the isometric side of things, what you just mentioned there. Is there any other aspects of isometrics that you that become useful in those types of environments? Especially I'm just thinking around how how jam-packed the schedule is and how isometrics may fit into this prevention but progression um you know physical development model in the nba yeah no i think uh, isometrics play a huge part a um because i think low low impact and high reward um but b they're they're very easy to teach you got to think if you're seven feet and you have a three and a half four foot spine right like there's certain positions that are just going to be hard for you to get in. So I think, you know, low impact, easy to teach. So I think when you look at risk reward, you know, doing a lot of isometric work, particularly for like, you know, your planar flexors or knee extenders like that, that's, that's money. Cause like, Hey, it's not hard for those taller athletes to get in those positions, but B the residual effects you get from managing tendinopathy is uh is exponential right so i i think there's huge benefit to doing isometrics um 
in an 82-game NBA schedule for sure. Superb. Right. Firstly, where can people keep up to date with some of the projects that you've you've mentioned that you've got going on? And secondly, where can people get access to the book? Yeah, so uh, we should have some of the research projects out here in the next couple of months. We just produced a uh, really good paper on training load that's uh, through the International Journal of Strength and Conditioning um, using that same year. It was actually a three-year study just looking at training load versus uh, our outcome measure of uh, closing point spread differential or like the betting odds um, to gauge in-game performance. Um, With the book Basketball Mechanics, you can just go on ultimateathleteconcepts.com and Yosef Johnson's site. And just uh, pur- purchase the book there, and it's available on Amazon as well. So, was that self-published? Was that is that the way you went? And it's on Joseph's site to sell, or was it through his publishing? It, it's it's U- UAC, so it's through okay. his publishing. Okay, yep. interesting, mm-hmm. interesting. We'll tell that offline because I'd like to know the process. And uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm interested. Sure. Cool. Right, mate, I'm going to let you go, but thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate the last 50 minutes and dive into some of the, the stuff that we have, but look forward to keeping in touch and uh, we'll chat soon. Thanks, Rob. Really appreciate it. Cheers, Adam. All right, cheers. Thanks for tuning in to episode 401 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Adam for giving up his time and being so open and honest in his in his work, in his book, in his current role, in his previous roles. Such a good guy and great to have him on. Big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Fusion Sport, Play, Satanta College and Omega Wave for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Thanks again for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next week. Thank you.